Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, also known as Draft Deep Dives Day, and we are continuing our prospect deep dives with my co-host, hashtag basketball draft expert, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing today? Well, we have NBA NBA playoffs going on. The Euro, Euro tournament is going on. Christian Eriksen is doing better and recovering, thankfully. And Cristiano Ronaldo is continuing to prove that he's the greatest of all time. So I am pretty darn good. Best wishes to Eriksen. And I'm sure Lionel Messi will be a little bit upset about your last comment. Never heard of the bump. Eh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think there's still an argument that can be made, but Clearly, you're not the person to whom I should be making an argument. <laughs> nah, but nope. Let's move on to the sport that we are here to cover, and let us start by going back into our draft deep dives. So today, we are covering picks 18 through 20 on Tyler's Top 75, available on hashtag basketball.com, a wonderful website. And we're starting out at number 18 with Sharif Cooper who is one of the more interesting prospects to evaluate in this class for me. We only got a 12-game sample size of him at Auburn after eligibility questions to start his season and an ankle injury to end his season. But what we did see from him during that 12-game sample size is that he's an absolute passing wizard. He's got an excellent hesitation dribble, which is going to be really huge for him at the NBA level. He might be the best lob passer in this class. I think he is, honestly, the best lob passer in this class. But the question marks for Sharif Cooper, number one, his defensive capability, which given that he's generously listed at six foot one, that's almost certainly going to be an issue that dogs him throughout his NBA career. The other thing with Cooper, as it is for many draft prospects, especially in the NBA these days, is concerns about his shot. And we covered Keon Johnson last week, and I'm a little less concerned by Cooper's jump shot than I am by Johnson's, despite the fact that Johnson technically shot a better percentage from three-point range, but that's comparing 27% to somehow 23% from Sharif Cooper. And I don't think that he's that bad of a three-point shooter, but I doubt he's all that much better than that. And if he's going to be a long-term NBA player, you know, given the concerns about his size that he's not really going to be able to erase, he's going to need to get much better with his jump shot. I mean, be between his ball handling and his passing, he is an absolute delight to watch as a primary initiator. And you mentioned his lob passes and just the, the touch and the vision and timing that he has on those is absolutely incredible. And, you know, I, I just wasn't really expecting that incredible of passing from him right away. And on top of that, he's able to, he's, he's excellent at reading the second and third levels of the weak side defense. So, you know, his ability to throw those lobs really forces those weak side defenders to cheat over on the roll and, despite his height, Cooper still has the vision and accuracy to really make perfect skip passes to those corner shooters. When it comes to his shooting, I, I'm a lot more worried about it than you are. I love his touch. I think he has really good touch, and that's encouraging to me that he'll eventually be able to get better. I, I, I don't expect him to be 23% for his whole career, but 
I have a, I think there's a lot of work that needs to go into improving because for starters, his height, I don't think he's six one. I think he's much smaller than that. And that will really, really limit what he can do shooting off the dribble. And there are a lot of mechanical issues with his shot for starters. It's more of a push shot, but we see funky releases all the time now. So I, that doesn't worry me as much. It's more so that he tends to fall out of his shot as in he's not quite fading away, but like unconsciously fading away with every one of his shots. And I think that's more of a symptom of him being so much smaller than everyone else he plays against and him compensating for that and trying to just get it over the defenders. So that I think is something that's been so ingrained in him because he's always been one of the smaller guys on the floor. So I'm concerned as how effectively that can be kind of worked out of his shooting mechanics. I do want to be clear. I am very, very concerned about his jump shot as well. I'm just not as concerned as I am about Keon's jump shot. So, you know, levels of like, I don't know, red level threat kind of concern here that we're talking about. But, you know, on the positive side with Sharif, you mentioned his ability to draw the second defender and throw skip passes. There are a few plays from his highlight tape where he just makes the defense look ridiculous because he'll draw the second guy and throw to someone who's just wide open under the basket. And he makes those plays for, you know, creating interior buckets for his teammates look so much easier than they are. And, you know, he's not just throwing lob passes when guys are wide open. I mean, he's throwing lob passes from near half court on some of these plays. You know, Mm -hmm. he's drawing defenses in and making it look like he's going to put up a floater. And instead, he just throws it perfectly over the top of the defense to his guy. And, you know, the shooting is a major, major concern. And I think the other thing that you mentioned, which is a great point, is that, you know, he isn't going up and down on that jump shot. You know, there's fading away. There's, you know, feet not being properly set. And those are the kinds of things that are, you know, more of a long-term issue than just, oh, he's not all that accurate. You know, he needs to spend a few days in the gym putting up 500 jump shots a day. There are some structural concerns that need to be worked out. It's just that, you know, I've seen worse jumpers is, I think, the best way for Mm -hmm. me to put it. But that doesn't mean that I'm not very concerned about Sharif's ability to actually knock those down. Yeah, and and the the mechanical issues are, they they seem to stem from physical limitations that he has no control over, which, you know, is what worries me. Because when you have that tendency for, you know, 18 years of your life to shoot it this way, because that's the only way it can work because you're so much smaller. I think it's going to take a lot of work to get that take taken out of his mechanics. And then, you know, even if he does, he, he has to generate so much space to get these shots off. It won't surprise me if he does, because just his ball handling and quickness and, you know, he, he, he's oddly one of the best in this class at putting pressure on the rim um, just because of how quick he is. So it, it wouldn't shock me if he's able to become a great space generator. I just I think those mechanical issues are going to linger for many years. Yeah, his pure speed and his hesitation dribble is, I don't want to say quite Isaiah Thomas because Isaiah Thomas is one of my favorite players ever, but you know he has that sort of element to his game where even though he's the smallest guy on the court, he just freezes dudes with his hesitation dribble and gets around them and gets his way to the basket. But you know when you're his 
height, you know, one of the ways to get around the sort of space creation issue is just to be able to bomb shots from 30 feet, Trey Young style. Mm -hmm. And that's so far away from being a part of his game that it seems like it would almost be a miracle if he can work that in. And, you know, if he can't do that, then he's going to have to rely on, you know, getting much better at his step backs and getting much more consistent with his form overall, because if he can work that into his game, you know, his ridiculous passing vision will make him an excellent NBA player, but he needs something more than what he has to not be an issue on the offensive end in terms of teams just being able to fall behind the picks on him and leave him a ton of open room. If he can't make them pay for that in any way other than just finding a way to drive by guys with his speed, that's going to be a problem. And I don't think anyone is really fast enough to be able to get to the rim that consistently if they have absolutely no threat of a jumper at all. Yeah, that that's an excellent point because if his defender can just go under every screen, it, it really limits, you know, that pressure that he can put on the rim because they already have a step on him. He has to make up even more ground. If they're going over, that's essentially a free lane that he gets and is in that 2v1 situation where he can kill him with a floater or throw a perfect lob pass. So you know, just not, he, he doesn't even have to be average. It's just, can you get the defenders to go over the screens every once in a while? Because I, in, in his 12 games, he, I, he shot 8.6 free throws a game, which is just absurd. And, you know, 82 and a half percent on those. So he, he has good touch. And once he gets in the paint, he can really do whatever he wants because, his lack of height seems to not bother him as much inside as it does outside because he's just more, he just looks much more comfortable at getting guys to bite on shot fakes and draw fouls or manipulate them with his eyes and find the open teammate. It, so it, it's kind of a weird ju juxtaposition when you take someone his size and he looks really uncomfortable out on the perimeter and then put him inside and he looks way more at peace. Yeah, that I think will mean, you know, he's clearly a primary point guard type of player, but that I think would make it really helpful for him to have at least, you know, a secondary guy who's drawing more attention than any of his teammates drew at Auburn because, you know, mm -hmm. if he can get kickouts and read the defense and attack on the dribble, that's going to be a lot better for his offense in his early NBA career than if he has to sort of try and create shots for himself from beyond the arc, which you know, he did put up almost five three-pointers a game. He just couldn't hit very many of them. And, you know, again, I think those numbers probably would have looked better if he'd played more than 12 games. I don't think he's a 23% shooter, but I don't think very many people are 23% shooters. And I don't think he's significantly better than that. And he would need, need to be significantly better than that for it to be a problem for defenses. Yeah, and I, I think that point of being able or playing next to like an actual penetrator is really important because like when you just looking at like playoff basketball right now when you look at like the phoenix suns or utah jazz and how much of their offense derives from driving kicks and swing and make that extra pass and then that guy has either a wide open three or can then penetrate and then find the open guy out of that you know if sharif is on the wing and that extra pass swings to him as the defense is scrambling he can attack that close out and then create from there so that that would really open up you know, a myriad of opportunities for him to really punish the defense and make his life a little easier on getting into the paint. But, you know, and that that's pretty context 
reliant, which isn't, you know, ideal. I mean, if he was even just two inches taller, I, I feel like I would feel completely different about him. So before we move on to the next player, just sort of quick run through of best guess at ceiling the floor and sort of how we view Sharif as a prospect overall. And I really struggled with this evaluation, honestly, because in his best moments, he looks like someone that you'd be foolish to pass on, you know, anywhere outside of like the top 10 or the lottery. But in his weaker moments, you know, watching him on defense or watching him struggle to put up shots, you know, I could very easily see a world where his ridiculous passing vision and his ability to knife to the rim just isn't enough to overcome his deficiencies. I think his ceiling, if he can get to the point where he's like a 32, 33% three-point shooter, is very solid starter on a very good playoff team, you know, maybe even an all-star if he can get his shot to be better than that. But the downside with him, if he doesn't develop his shot and teams just go under on every pick and makes it harder for him to find passing lanes, makes it harder for him to get to the rim, you know, he could be someone who struggles to get a second contract. I could see that world for him a lot more easily than some of the players that we both have ranked higher than him on our respective boards. I, I think it's going to be so context dependent with him because if he is surrounded by, you know, more athletic guards and wings who can, you know, make up for some of his defensive lapses and who can help him space the floor and whatnot, then I think it'd be a lot better if a team's expecting to bring him in and be like, all right, you're going to run the show. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be Trey Young from day one. They're going to be, I think it's really going to struggle. And you kind of mentioned it earlier. He's kind of like Trey Young, but without the shooting. One that I kind of keep going back to, like his, his playmaking reminds me a lot of LaMelo Ball, but he's in Facundo Compasso's body. So I, you know, it's really, really hard to make a significantly positive impact in the NBA at that size. So he, he has the passing vision and playmaking skills to do it. I'm just not sure if he can, you know, it's going to be a lot to overcome for him. Let's move on to the next prospect who's about as different as you can get from Sharif Cooper as a prospect. Isaiah Jackson out of Kentucky, who's a 6'10", big man, power forward, probably going to play more center than power forward in the NBA. He is one of the best shot blockers in college basketball last season, and it's not the Hassan Whiteside kind of shot blocking type where it's just, you know, jumps at everything and gets three blocks a game, but also fouls 74 times and gives up a bunch of open shots. He's got really great timing on his shot blocking. He has really good instincts. He doesn't fall for pump fakes anywhere near as often as you'd expect from 18, 19 year old with crazy athleticism. The jump shot, he didn't really take many jump shots at all at Kentucky on the few that he took the form didn't look too terrible, but that's clearly something that he's going to need to work on. You know, as a six ten guy, he could be a center most of the time in the modern NBA, but it would really open up his game. If he can at least be a threat from 15, 20 feet, you know, not even mentioning him sort of extending that out to beyond three point range. He had a 0.5 assist to turnover ratio. He was in the 78th percentile offensively overall per synergy, but 51st percentile when you're including possessions and assists. But I don't think he's that bad of a passer. He did show a few flashes where he looked like he was a better playmaker than that, you know, not in terms of 
crazy highlight passes, but just in terms of sort of making the obvious reads for kickouts or for other big men running down the lane. And he also was in the 91st percentile defensively and furthermore just got better and better as the season went along for Kentucky. There have been people talking about him as a lottery player, and I don't see that personally, but I could definitely see an NBA team getting enamored with his tools and, you know, thinking, hey, 12, 13, 14, you know, it's worth taking a swing on this guy. He's one of the guys that I've struggled with a lot because, as you mentioned, the the shot blocking is is so impressive, and his length and explosiveness and second jump ability is all really impressive. Um, Early in the season, I was really scared off by his processing speed where he just kind of seemed to be a step or two behind everything um as the season went on though that got that got better and became you know less of an issue so long term I I don't have as many worries as I did in the first half of the season my my biggest thing with him is I I just don't know kind of what role he fits into especially offensively I mean, he was in the fourth percentile on jump shots, but as you said, I mean, he only took 19 of them according to Synergy. So I, I don't want to lean too heavily on that. The form looked okay. It seemed like it could eventually expand a little bit farther away, but everything he did offensively was around the rim. Um, you know, recent years, Kentucky's been notorious for kind of pigeonholing guys into a certain role and not showing off a lot of their stuff you know Devin Booker we saw him do very little on ball creation Carl Anthony Towns didn't shoot any threes at Kentucky you know Shea Gilgis Alexander was purely just a playmaker and not used as a scorer so it's like is this just something where all right he's a super long athletic big man so they just wanted him around the rim the whole time because I mean he was in the 83rd percentile around the basket and scoring but those were all essentially tip-ins and lobs and you know cutting into the dunker spot and finishing there so I I just don't know how his offense develops and at his size I'm not sure that he can really withstand the physicality of playing a full-time five yeah the Kentucky typecasting element of this makes the evaluation a bit harder but you know as we've talked about frequently on this podcast, there's only so much value to using a high draft pick on a defense-first big man who's super athletic and doesn't really do much other than score around right. the rim. You know, it's so easy to find those players. You know, pretty much anywhere. And former Kentucky big man number six overall pick Nerlens Noel signed for five million dollars by the Knicks, basically off the scrap heap this year. It makes me wonder if it's really worth spending that high of a draft pick on someone like Jackson, especially since, as you mentioned, his first year in the league, you know, he's going to get bullied a lot under the basket because he's so skinny. On the flip side, though, I mean, you know, as you mentioned, his jump shooting was in the fourth percentile. Not great, but the form doesn't look broken. It's just that he barely took any and barely hit any. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously he's not Carl Anthony Towns. I don't think very many big men can ever really be compared to Carl Anthony Towns. But if Carl Anthony Towns wasn't allowed to shoot three-pointers at Kentucky, you know, you can imagine that Isaiah Jackson was never going to be allowed to shoot three-pointers at Kentucky. So that's really the big question with him. You know, 
if he can even get a 15-foot jumper that he can hit reliably to start his career, that's going to make such a big difference to his offensive game because defenses at least need to pay attention to him, you know, if he's on the pick and pop rather than just, you know, slipping or rolling to the rim. And, you know, there just isn't very much information to sort of try and determine whether or not that's something that he could develop in his first two years, whether that's something that might never come along for him, or whether that's something that he's had this entire time and just, you know, didn't get to show at Kentucky because he was told to just clean things up around the basket. You kind of mentioned running the pick and roll game. I mean, he, and he only ran nine possessions as the role man. Um, Which is absurd. Right. And, you know, and thinking back on it, it kind of makes a little sense because Olivier Saar was there and he was more of the actual center. But it it just seems like you've still run pick and rolls with your power forward a lot. And the fact that he only ran nine screens, I mean, he, he I, I don't think he's an excellent screen setter, but it seems like that, like just teaching him how to set a screen and then roll hard with his length and athleticism would immediately improve his, his offensive impact um I I just struggle to see how what type of role he fits in because the way he was used at Kentucky is just bewildering and just so extremely limited that it it does it did very little for kind of projecting what he would be offensively and and maybe that's because he can't do what you know I'm kind of hoping that he he will eventually do but his his entire selling point right now is defense and rim protection and you you brought up Towns or I guess I did initially but it like pairing him next to Carl Anthony Towns who's constantly stretching the floor and you know would benefit greatly by like that secondary rim protector behind him rotating from the weak side playing next to a center like that would be an awesome role for him because then offensively he can play more of the center role and he's not expected to space out or really cause any issues with or take on any scoring responsibility. So just, I I, I think he could be context dependent given his offensive limitations, but defensively worst case scenario, he's just an, an awesome energy rim protector. I mean, the flip side of this discussion as well is that, you know, we mentioned that he sort of grew in his role as the season progressed, and this was the most disappointing Kentucky season in a long, long time, and, you know, Brandon Boston Jr. came into the season as a projected top five pick, and now we both have him falling outside of the first round because that's how disappointing his season was, and, you know, he was not the only Kentucky player that disappointed, and... For Jackson to be sort of the lone bright spot and to go from absolute afterthought on offense to still kind of an afterthought, but doing much better with a slightly expanded role down the stretch of the season, you know, that's certainly encouraging, especially since, you know, he didn't have anywhere near as much open space around him as I would have expected he would have had down the stretch of the season for Kentucky because the team around him struggled as mightily as it did. It definitely wasn't a good situation or season for anyone on that team. Um, and and that, that, that point that he improved is important because he did and it should be noted and taken in, into consideration because I hopefully all these guys will continue to improve. Just I, I, I keep going back to that shot and why he only took 19 of them. And it just seems weird because his mechanics seem workable. They don't seem, they're not horrendous, you know, but he didn't even look like he had the confidence to 
to shoot. And, you know, even when he was 12, 15 feet away from the rim, he just would, he would rarely even look at the rim as an idea. It was always an afterthought. And it was always how quickly can I give this ball ball up to someone else? And that makes the evaluation so difficult because how much of that is, I really don't feel confident in my jump shot and therefore I'm not going to take it. And how much of that is, if I take a jump shot, I know coach Cal's going to pull me immediately. Right. Like that's right. You know, that makes it so much tougher to sort of figure out, is he just that limited offensively or was he just told to not step outside of this very, very small box on the offensive end? And, you know, it's probably a mixture of both, but I I, I always struggle with Kentucky's approach and how they limit these guys. Um, I, I know who am I to talk because they have quite a solid record of turning out pros pretty consistently but it's it's just frustrating from from my end well you know i think the flip side of that is you know when you're talking about jackson or towns or devin booker it's like they showed enough at kentucky with the things that they were the best at right it's like if you're only focusing on the things that you're exceptional at and those skills are good enough to get you a first round grade or maybe even a lottery grade or you know in the case of towns like even without him shooting three pointers he was still the clear number one overall pick in his class you know there is something to be said for that too where it's like okay you know we're going to make sure that you're elite at the things that you're elite at and get yourself drafted and then once you get to the nba you know you can focus on okay let's expand my game a little bit so that i can go from solid contributor to star or all-star or all nba player in the cases of towns and booker you know i don't know it's sort of it's a hard dynamic to evaluate the players certainly but i do sort of see the logic behind it from the player perspective of okay let's just make sure that these guys get drafted and get drafted pretty highly and then you know from there they can expand their game or you know in the case of some of these guys like say Nerlens Noel who I mentioned earlier you know maybe they don't have that much more to expand in their game and that's fine if you get to be the sixth overall pick despite tearing your ACL right before the draft. That's that's incredibly true, um, and I, I've I'm, I'm probably coming across a little more doom and gloom than I intend to. But I mean, even if that offensive role doesn't improve, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. We see these, you know, elite shot blockers littered throughout the league with Nerlens Noel or energy guys like Jared Vanderbilt or Javel McGee. If if you can be an elite rim protector, you're going to have a spot on a team, and so. You know, I, I worry about what Isaiah Jackson's, you know, upside could be, but I think he's guaranteed to be in the league or through at least a second contract because he is that freak athlete rim protector with incredible length. And as his processing speed keeps improving, I, you know, his defensive impact is only going to, you know, get higher. And given his athleticism and explosiveness, I'm really intrigued to see, you know, how versatile he can become as a defender. And if he's going to really be able to like switch out on, on wings and smaller guys too, because if he can do that and then combined with his rim protection, his overall defensive impact could be pretty scary. So that is an excellent way to transition into talking about best guests at ceiling floor and sort of overall view of Jackson as a prospect. And you mentioned that you don't, think he's likely to fall out of the league before he gets a second contract and I agree on that I mean 
his defensive impact just makes his floor so high. And, you know, when we're comparing him to the guy right ahead of him in Sharif Cooper, I'm much more confident in Isaiah Jackson's floor than I am in Sharif Cooper's floor. You know, on the flip side, I think that he could have a really high ceiling. I mean, all defensive guy who might be on the mm-hmm. borderline of all-star discussions, especially if his jump shot is, you know, in the realm of solid as opposed to just, you know, not all that great, but doesn't look like it's going to be a disaster. I mean, I think he has a really, really high ceiling. I just think that it's going to very much depend on his context over the first couple of years in the league, you know, whether he can bring his jump shot along slowly and focus on being as excellent as he is on the defensive end of the floor. You know, he could have a very high ceiling, but he might have a really low chance of reaching that ceiling. That being said, you know, his defensive impact makes it so that his floor is very high and, you know, a lot higher than you're going to see in the average player that's sort of around the late teens, early 20s of the draft. My ceiling for him is a little lower. Um, you know, I, I think best case scenario, he he's a really impactful starter for a while. But I, I, I think the likelihood of him hitting that is, you know, like you mentioned, pretty, pr- pretty slim. But I, I think worst case scenario, he's third center off a bench for the next eight to 10 years and just really carves out a role. You know, I, I would be stunned if he doesn't make a second contract, maybe even the third you know, the, those contracts may not be what he hopes for, but I, I, I definitely think they'll they'll at least be there for him. All right, let's move on to the next prospect on the list who I have slandered more than pretty much everyone else I've slandered combined on this podcast. Josh Christopher, who is number 20 overall, and he's got a very solid build and he could explode to the rim when he has a lane. He's in the 70th percentile offensively per synergy, but in the 91st percentile in transition. But as we've discussed every time that I have said negative things about Josh Christopher, I just can't get around how often he just dribbles into mid-range pull-ups, just dribbles his way into 18, 20-footers and doesn't look at any of his teammates and just chucks the ball up. It's really concerning for me. And as I mentioned before we started recording, I could very easily see a world where evaluating Josh Christopher as a non-first-round pick in my top 30 is going to come back to haunt me more than almost any other prospect that I have outside of the first round. But, I mean, that offensive shot selection is really concerning to me, and his overall consistency is you know, going to be a problem if he doesn't find a way to get better in that regard. But, you know, I don't want to go too far in on Christopher because, you know, especially having rewatched film on him in preparation for this podcast, I'm getting more and more worried that by evaluating him outside of the first round is going to come back to bite me. But it really does concern me just watching him consistently dribble into those contested 18 footers. So I, I, I think the Arizona state situation last year was pretty horrific all around. Um, I, I think Remy Martin, not, and him and Alonzo Verge were not great guard mates uh, for Christopher to play with, given their shot selection. Just the sh- shot selection on that entire team was abysmal. And I think Christopher and Bagley played together like for two games or something because their their injuries just kept kind of offsetting each other. 
Um, so that combined with Christopher's injury, I don't think did him any favors, but I, I agree that I didn't love the shot selection. I also think that part of that was due to him kind of coming in as the highest recruit since James Harden and the expectations of him, you know, reliving that. So I, I think the biggest difference with Christopher in the end, he's one of these guys where I don't worry about his shot selection at the next level as much as say a guy like Cam Thomas, because I, I believe way more in Christopher's defense. I, I think he will be a good defender at the next level. Um, if he was a little, little inconsistent on that, on that end of the floor, but I, I think it, it's an area that he really competes at and really cares about. So even if some of the fundamental stuff and awareness lapsed at times, I, I think it's something that he's going to realize that will be his easy, easiest way to get playing time initially and will really help him kind of continue that offensive development. The The shot selection w- was not great. His shooting numbers are kind of weird, especially off the catch where when he was guarded, he was 12 of 17. And when he was unguarded, he was one of 12. So that didn't really make any sense. Um, but then, you know, like you said, off the dribble, he was in the 20, 29th percentile. And I, I think that was a lot more due to how bad of shots he took off the dribble in the mid range that were really heavily contested as opposed to how good of a shooter, you know, he could potentially develop into. I'm definitely more worried about his defensive consistency than you are. He does at least make the effort, which is certainly more than we could say about Cam Thomas and, you know, his solid build, which is really helpful whenever he gets anywhere around the rim and can, you know, put up shots despite contests that will also help him on the defensive end you know he's not going to get pushed around as much as your average rookie on the defensive end just because he's more sturdy than your average rookie on both ends of the floor and the point about Bagley I think is really important as well I mean the two of them playing together would have been a huge boost for both of their respective stocks. You know, they both would have looked Mm -hmm. much better if they'd had the other guy on the floor for the majority of their minutes to kind of draw away attention. So, you know, that sort of is a little light at the end of the tunnel, I guess, for Christopher in that the injury timing of his teammates was really poor. You mentioned the guard play around him. You know, it wasn't exactly like anyone on Arizona State was making brilliant choices with their shot selection. But, I mean, that is the kind of thing that, you know, if he doesn't go to a team that makes it very clear to him that he's not going to get playing time if he's jacking up contested 18-footers on a regular basis, then, you know, he could, I think, play his way into a role as a rookie. And, you know, I don't think he's going to be good on defense his first couple of years, but he definitely has the defensive potential to be solid eventually you know, the biggest question for me is just can he rein in his offense enough to the point where coaches allow him to sort of work through his mistakes on the defensive end and get to the point where he can be a solid defender? Yeah, I and mean, I, I have, you know, th- this is a great way to start off a, a debate, but I have nothing to back this up. But besides feel and intuition, and I, I just, I think he's he's going to go to a team where, you know, he, he has to do the little things to get playing time and he's not going, the expectations on him are going to be so much lower than they were coming out of high school. And I, I just, I think he has the personality where he's 
going to be willing to grind and do what the coaching staff asks. I, you know, I, I don't think he's this, well, I, I guess he is a high ego kid because everyone who makes the NBA has to have a high ego, but I, I don't mean that in a negative way. I, I think he's going to be willing to buy in and do those little things and do what's best for the team. And I, I just, I don't think that Arizona state team had really any direction and through injuries and COVID and just having no consistency in their rotation. Um, I, I, I think that really just kind of messed up, you know, the pecking order of their offense. Yeah. And, you know, the other issue with that as well is, you know, the going back to the Bagley injury that really left Josh Christopher as one of the better three point options for Arizona state. And he was still mm-hmm. a 30% three point shooters. So, you know, even then not all that great, but at the next level, he's certainly not going to be in an environment where I don't assume he's going to be in an environment anytime early on in his career where he's the primary guy. And, you know, if he has to earn minutes and earn his way to the rotation, which he would, you know, if he ends up being 20th overall, like you have him, or certainly if he's early second round, like I have him, you know, that could bode much better for his development than, you know, being a top 10 recruit out of high school. And the ego thing, it's all on a relative scale, right? And, you know, he has a medium ego for the standards of an NBA player, as opposed to Cam Thomas, who I think we're both much more worried about uh, certainly on the defensive end and, you know, will, being willing to put in the effort on the defensive end, then that will be huge for Christopher. And, you know, the plus side for him is at least he has the kind of NBA-ready body where it's easier to envision him getting to be a good defender once he sort of works through his mistakes on that end. It's just he will need to be much smarter about his shot selection to be able to work through those mistakes and earn the playing time that he will need to be able to develop into an above average defender. And if if he does, you know, if the shooting does improve, if the decision-making improves, you know, that, that defense takes, you know, the, the leap that I expected to, you know, I mean, he, he has the framework and the foundation where he could be one of the biggest steals from this draft with his athleticism and body type and just kind of scoring instincts. Um, so, you know, once you get into the twenties, if you can just get, if you can get a guy who can play you, you won with that pick. Um, if you get into the twenties and you have a home run swing, um, and get a guy who could end up returning top 10 value, I, I, I kind of think Christopher falls in more into that bucket. So that's a good way to transition into sort of talking about best guess at ceiling and floor and how we view him as a prospect overall. Obviously, since I'm much lower on him than you are, I'm willing to bet that I see him as having a much lower floor than you do. I mean, I could see him busting out of the NBA pretty quickly. On the flip side, in terms of his ceiling, I mean, if he can focus more on being an off-ball player rather than a majority on-the-ball player and really work on his defense, you know, I could see him sticking around in a rotation for a while. I'm just really worried about him not figuring it out on the offensive end quickly enough to be able to get the developmental time that he'll need on the defensive end. And, you know, if that ends up happening again, it's pretty easy to see him falling out of the NBA pretty quickly. But the more film I watch of him and the more time goes on, you know, it's certainly much easier for me to see him being a very successful early second round pick or maybe even someone who I wouldn't hate it all that much if a team takes him at the very back end of the first round. 
and you know I'm lower on him than I am on Cam Thomas just because I think Cam Thomas is a much better shot creator overall but I also think that Cam Thomas is a much 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 more volatile prospect just because he doesn't have that potential fallback option of working on his defense and being a really solid player on that end of the floor I guess Christopher reminds me a lot of Dylan Brooks um where I, I think he'll be he, he could he has the potential to be this physical two-way guard who makes a lot of tough shots granted making tough shots comes with taking bad shots but Dylan Brooks made an impact on the Grizzlies uh down the stretch this season so I think he has the potential to develop into that or like a like a Tim Hardaway Jr that kind of type of off-ball guard um if he's comes in with the expectation of all right I'm in the NBA now. I'm going to be the man. I'm going to take over. I'm going to be this primary initiator. I'm going to be ball dominant. I'm going to lead the league in scoring. Then I would be kind of surprised if he ever really gets legitimate minutes because then I don't think any of those bad habits of his will ever be smoothed out. And in fact, they'll probably just be exacerbated and you know, he, he won't make those necessary jumps that he needs to. The Tim Hardaway Jr. and Dylan Brooks comps are really interesting to me. The biggest difference that I see is I'm much less confident in Christopher Schott from three-point range than I was with yeah. either of those two guys. Yeah, and that that that's definitely the biggest difference. But I'm, you know, I I just I'm comparing the athleticism, the body types, the roles, the you know, the quick trigger, um, the shot selection, all of that is more where I lean to. Those those two are. De- we're definitely better shooters coming out of college uh, than Christopher is, but I, I do think his shooting numbers would look a lot better if he didn't take so many just horrid mid-range jumpers. So before we wrap things up here, I wanted to sort of talk quickly through these three players as potential risers or fallers on draft nights, because when we're talking about Sharif Cooper, Isaiah Jackson, and Josh Christopher, All three of those guys are players that I could see having one or two exceptional workouts for teams. You know, Cooper just gets crazy hot from three-point range and makes a ton of shots in a workout. Isaiah Jackson, I mean, the kind of athlete that he is, if he can show anything on his jumper, he could definitely rise up into the lottery. And, you know, Christopher is just such a volatile prospect that I think he has one of the widest ranges, both in terms of general draft evaluators sort of in the draft Twitter space, but, you know, I'm willing to bet also within NBA front offices, there's a huge range of where teams are willing to draft them. What are your thoughts on these three as potential risers or fallers on draft night? And I'll start by saying that I think it's very easy for me to see a world in which Isaiah Jackson climbs up into the lottery while we both have him sort of more as a mid first round guy. I think it'll be a little bit harder to see that from Cooper or Josh Christopher, and I could definitely see both of them falling a lot lower than the average evaluation on them. But, I mean, the flip side of that is any one of these guys has a great workout where they sort of show off the skill sets that we've discussed that we're worried about, and it just takes one team to sort of fall in love with any of these three guys that might lead to them being picked in the lottery. So I I would guess that Isaiah Jackson out of these three has the best chance to go in the lottery. Um, I, I I don't think it'll be hard for NBA teams to convince themselves of his 
shot blocking and you know explosiveness and length and just overall defensive impact and then the you know that he does have more to his offensive game and they'll be able to help refine and expand his shooting um so come draft night i i would be surprised if jackson wasn't the highest taken out of these three i i would anticipate that teams will get pretty turned off by cooper's measurements um but like you said, it only takes one team to fall in love with his playmaking and his floater and thinking that his shooting is way more easily correctable, especially if they get him in an empty gym and he, he hits, you know, 75 out of 100 threes or something. Um, but I, I, I still lean towards, I, I, I think Christopher has the best chance of returning lottery upside, you know, five to 10 years from now. But a lot's going to have to go right for him. All right. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? Any plugs or anything of the sort? Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga scouting reports went live this week. Uh, so head on over to hashtag basketball.com to read those. Uh, currently working on Moses Moody. So hopefully we'll have that out in the next couple of days. And then, you know, I'll just kind of keep going down the draft guide and cranking those out. So Trey Mann and a couple others will hopefully follow shortly after. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-N-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. And you can find those draft previews of Jalen Green, Jonathan Kaminga, and other prospects to come on hashtag basketball.com. And you can also find Tyler's work on Canis Hoopus. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And I put all of my work up on my Twitter feed when it goes live. So you can check all of my stuff out there. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Ah!